I'm also reminded of the look you had on your face when you slipped your handcuffs while being transported back to Colorado and attacked Deputy James. I shudder to think that that was probably the last thing that Gannon saw before he died. My name is Madison, and you are listening to or watching Who's Knocking, a true crime podcast. Welcome, welcome. Hi, I'm back. Um, I've been gone for a while, and nothing interesting or dramatic. I just had a busy summer and had to do more, more watching my own children than I had initially anticipated, and so I just didn't didn't have the the time to record. Really, I did work on these two episodes so this is this is my uh behemoth of the end to the series um I tried to distill it down to one episode couldn't do it it would be way too long so there will be two more parts part five and part six um if you've not seen part one to four leave now and go do that because this is it wouldn't make sense why are you even here um yeah that's pretty much it so I'm going to do these two two more episodes, and then I think I am going to step back a little bit and do a little bit of a makeover to the show, something I mentioned in part four, and yeah, that's still the plan. My plans never go as planned, so don't hold me to it, but that's so far the plan, and if you stick around with me for like one more year, I won't have to deal with kids all day, and I will have so much more time. Again, a plan, we don't know. So... I think we'll get into it because this is going to be long. There's going to be a lot of clips. Uh, we're talking mostly about Letitia's trial. So I think let's go. And by the way, I will just say right now, you are not going to get, this is not going to be like an unbiased situation. Look at the trial. I've been looking in the wrong spot. But this is not going to be a detached, like, un I have my own thoughts and opinions. I'd like to try to remain unbiased a lot of the time, as much as one can be, um, but this is not going to be the time. I have opinions. I have thoughts. I've spent a lot of time researching this case and following along with it, so that's just not what you're going to get. Heads up, warning. Um, yeah, so let's go. A small, very, very, very bare bones recap. Gannon Stalk, age 11, 2020, goes missing. His stepmother, Letitia Stalk, um, this is in Colorado, by the way, she um, uh, calls it in. The police come. And she says that he went to his friend's house, never came back, super worried. Uh, Al, his father, comes back from his military training that he was on to come search for Gannon. Huge searches happen. Everybody's wondering where he is. Letitia doesn't help at all. She starts acting super suspicious, starts changing her story, uh, goes on the run, f 
we the police track her the entire time. They follow her. They're calling her, trying to get information out of her. It's very obvious that she had something to do with it. Literally, nothing has been more obvious than I'm like I've never seen something more obvious in my entire life. Um, finally, they gather enough evidence to arrest her. They find Gannon's body in Florida. Shocker, Letitia went through Florida, and it was her who dumped the body. Obviously, um, she's arrested, and. That's basically what happened. Again, go back to one to four. You will get all the information. Um, but just for those who it's taken a while, um, if you recall in last episode, there was a very eventful drive when they extradited her from Myrtle Beach, where they found her, back to Colorado. And uh, she attacked one of the officers in the car and tried to escape. Actually, multiple officers in the car she attacked because um, she's crazy and that's all i'll say and let's get into it all right so leticia was arrested and she was charged with first degree murder first degree murder of a person under age 12 tampering with a deceased human body and tampering with physical evidence so four charges now one would think that she would start taking her situation seriously maybe get herself a lawyer stop acting like an idiot but alas she did not Instead, Letitia pled not guilty to all charges, and she set us on a path to the world's dumbest murder trial in the history of the world. The multi-year lead-up to her trial was quite eventful, and just for context at the time, um, this fell right alongside the worldwide COVID pandemic, so that, of course, helped to slow things down. Um, But Letitia got up to some bullshit all on her own as well. So in June of 2020, it was discovered that Letitia was hatching an escape plan. Yes, this genius level doctor wrote physical letters to a fellow inmate asking for help to escape. She offered her money that she obviously didn't have and left a giant trail of evidence for all to find. Now, during a pretrial hearing, Letitia was charged with the solicitation to commit uh, escape She was charged with that. And directly following that, the defense was granted their motion to have Letitia's competency evaluated. Now, this, again, would put things on hold. Just for clarity, a competency evaluation is held to determine whether or not a defendant is competent at the present time and would thus be able to stand trial and aid in their own defense. This is something different from pleading not guilty by reason of insanity, which will be relevant soon Um, an insanity plea would be that the defendant was quote insane at the time of the crime or in this case murder but does not necessarily mean that they are insane now so one could be insane at the time of the murder and competent to stand trial Um, they could also be one or the other or they could be neither now Letitia was eventually deemed competent to stand trial um, But that was before she decided to write a very long four-page letter to the judge with claims of physical and emotional abuse from inside the prison. She complained that her food had been tampered with, writing, quote, I received threats in my peanut butter because I provided evidence of not only my innocence, but evidence that will show who it was through my PI, end quote. Letitia is sitting in a prison cell still going on about this alleged evidence that she has that will prove her innocence and girl present it 
The judge did nothing about the letter, as it was obviously yet more bullshit. Now, many theorized that Letitia had written this letter in an attempt to make herself seem mentally unstable so that it could be used as evidence towards her competency evaluation. Uh, and it all happened right after the competency evaluation. But I think everybody saw it for what it was. It was four pages of nonsense ramblings. And I think that the theory that she did that on purpose definitely has merit. But I think it's also been made evident to all of us at this point that she talks a lot. She's a really rambly, annoying person just naturally. Uh, so either way, no one cared and things carried on. Now, Letitia was being represented by a public defender at the time. And on April 28th of 2021, she decided that she didn't want her public defender anymore. And instead, she wanted to represent herself. A decision that nobody was surprised by, given that she was obviously a super narcissistic person. And those people tend to like to represent themselves and think that they're smart enough to do so. However, only two days after the judge uh allowed her to represent herself. On April 30th, she changed her mind and uh, the judge reappointed her her public defender. Now, shortly after that, another judge uh, went through the whole thing and decided to grant Letitia a new set of attorneys, which I've never heard of such such a situation um, where, they, where somebody's granted what's called uh, a state's attorney. I just thought that uh, if you were going to be granted anyone, it, it only comes from the public defender's office, but I guess not. And uh, there's the, uh, the it's not an affidavit, but the, the documentation showing that that's what they did. Um, I've, again, I've never heard of this, but chime in lawyers I've, if you have information on this. Now this bullshit just added more delays and what, yada, yada, yada. But on February 14th of 2022, Letitia went on to change her plea from not guilty to not guilty by reason of insanity. I think most people privy to this case who are keeping up believe that they did this as a delay tactic or a last ditch effort. I mean, there was so much evidence already known to the public that pointed at Letitia and only Letitia and indicated that she knew exactly what she was doing. So I think most of us were pretty surprised that by the time they got to the actual trial, which began on April 3rd of 2023, that she was still going with this plea and that she hadn't, you know, given in because it seemed like it was gonna be a huge waste of time, and it was. But I mean, who knows? Maybe the defense had something. Maybe they were gonna pull some crazy shit out of their pocket and uh, surprise us all. You be the judge. So I will go over the trial, some of the highlights, but as I've mentioned before, the entire trial is up on YouTube. Multiple channels have it posted in its entirety. Uh, it was streamed live. Um, if you've never watched a, tr a murder trial specifically and always wanted to or have and wanted to watch another one, I would highly suggest this one. It was very interesting. And maybe I only think that because I was already invested, but I don't know. I thought it was very interesting. I'm about to break it down for you guys. So, you know, you probably won't need to after you watch this, but it's, I listened to the entire thing live. The trial uh, was held in El Paso County. Um, the judge was Judge Gregory Werner, and he seemed like a pretty cool guy. Uh, the main prosecutor in this case was a man named Michael Allen, who is a district attorney for El Paso County. Um, the head defense attorney for Letitia Stouck, uh, again, this was a state's attorney, was a man named Josh Tallini. And his opening statement started off normal, 
Um, he was, you know, talking about reasonable doubt and what a jury's responsibility is and why or why not, like, why you can't charge somebody based on such and such evidence. Very typical um, murder trial defense attorney opening statement, uh, though it did quickly veer off track. I can see it in your eyes, ladies and gentlemen. A lot of you... As far as your concern, I could burn in hell for representing Ms. Stalk. A lot of you won't even make eye contact with me. I might as well just be the devil himself up here running his mouth. But I'm not. No different than those three at that table right there. Paid advocates. Order. Karen Voidier says they are paid advocates. Lenny and I were paid advocates. They have their side of the story. And I just want to be heard. Want our side to be heard. Sir, this is a murder trial with a child victim. Have you maybe considered that it isn't about you? Like, I see where he's coming from with this. He's trying to indicate that he wants his client to get a fair trial. Fine. But, I mean, present the evidence then. All right. We've got a photo here. We've got some familiar-looking faces. Gannon. Letitia Stouch. Stepmom, stepson. Gannon's little sister in the back. Look at that. Looks like everybody's doing pretty good. Happy, sunny day. Maybe Miss Stout is doing a selfie, holding the camera out, whatever. When, when, a when, a when would have this photo been taken? The day before Gannon died. This did not have the effect that he was hoping it would, I have to assume. Also, he couldn't even pronounce his client's name right. From the time she was three or four years old, Miss Stouch, until she finally moved out. And she suffered. She suffered horrifically from these stepfathers. <laughs> These boyfriends of her mother. <clears throat> Watched her mother get beat by the boyfriends, physically abused, until eventually the physical abuse, these men reserved for her mother, eventually trained on nostalgia. Oh, girl. First of all, this is giving very Casey Anthony vibes. Y'all know. If you know, you know. Second, I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe she suffered some sort of abuse at the, at the hands of her stepfather. I think that's likely true. Fine. But she murdered an 11-year-old child. A baby, somebody else's baby. 
Honestly, I think that they must have lost the jury as soon as they tried to get them to start feeling bad for Letitia. I mean, with all the evidence, including the whole candle incident recording that we all talked about before, the state played that in their opening statements, which I can't even listen to anymore. So I don't know what they could have said to get anybody to feel bad for this woman. I, you know, so in a way I feel bad for the defense, like they had nothing. Um, and I think that all they thought that they could do was try to emotionally manipulate the jury uh, because they sure as hell did not have any compelling evidence or even reasonable doubt to throw at them. Now, Al Stelk was one of, if not the first, witness to take the stand. And that was just heartbreaking, obviously. He had to go over everything in painstaking detail. The last time he saw his son, uh, the whole relationship he had with Letitia, what happened after he found out that Gannon went missing, uh, everything. Yeah, I, like I said this morning, I, I left that first interview, went home, checked on the girls, and then went out to search again uh, to Walmart, looking, planning on going to the game section or whatever. And then it hit me to go look for the car at French Elementary School. Wasn't there, and I didn't get too far out of the parking lot of French before I called. I think I got a hold of Bethel, who it was, and said, hey, something's wrong. And I started, I was actually freaking out pretty hard. And they're like, calm down, just come on, come back downtown. And that's when I did the second interview. So <clears throat> what was it about you not finding the car at French Elementary School that caused you to, as you just now described it, to freak out? Uh, well, two things. It was a flat-out lie, in my estimation. Uh, that's my perspective. Because um, she told me the car was there and never told me she had moved the car. Um, and a few other things, and once again, I don't want to get into the hearsay, but things I didn't see that people had told me. I, put, I was putting all these pieces together. And then that was the first lie I, I in my mind, I confirmed. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, hold on. She's dead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying. So um, <laughs> there's a lot here. Yeah. And um, obviously, we're talking about your son. And yes. understand that this is a stressful moment for you, uh, having to recollect this from three years ago. Um, really listen to what the question is and just answer that question, OK? Um, when you went to look for the defendant's car at French Elementary School, did you find it? No. Did that um, cause you to change your opinion as to, along with other things like you said this morning, as to the nature of Gannon's disappearance? Absolutely, yes, sir. When you went to the sheriff's office that second time, so later in the evening on January 28th, um, did you specifically tell the detectives what you thought uh, was in the defendant's car based on the information you had yeah i made a statement to them about uh, they asked me that question and i just replied with what i thought i was going to find in the car what did you think you were going to find if you found the car i think my hope was to find gannon um you know uh, that was the whole point of searching was to find gannon so you thought gannon might be in that car i had no clue but that's what i that's what i said to them absolutely yes sir okay i cannot imagine how painful this process must have been for Al. Having to go back to that awful time where he was looking for his son, hoping that he'd, been, that he'd be found alive, and then having that hope slowly die day after day and coming to the realization that his wife, the person who he should have had the most trust in the world with, finding out that she was the one responsible for taking away his son. 
I've thought a lot about what it would be like to be in Al's shoes. And of course, it's impossible to understand. It's truly unimaginable unless you've been in that type of situation. This is the type of situation that literally kills people. Now, one thing that I and many others noticed about Al's testimony was just how calm, cool, and collected Al was the entire time. I mean, this is the trial of an 11-year-old boy's murder, and the boy is his son. Um, And Al having emotional outbursts or crying at all would have been completely reasonable and I think something that people would have expected. But Al was calm. He sounded matter-of-fact and even laughed at times. And I think people found this a little bit odd. But I think it's much more indicative of his innate personality, uh, of his military background. And after going over all of the evidence and the hours of interviews and the phone calls between him and Letitia and paying attention to his demeanor the entire time, it it checks out to me. Um, my dad, my husband, I've never seen either of them cry. I've never seen any of them, either of them get emotional. Like that's normal to me. Other people have different experiences. Everybody experiences things differently and everybody has a different way of dealing with grief. Um, so I did not have any suspicions on that and I found it quite frankly weird that people did. Um, and again, like, at the end of the trial, you'll see him break down. It's not like it's not like you never see Al break down, but he just seems to me like the type of guy. Um, and I've known this type of man before. It's I think it's a kind of common uh, trait in a in a man is when when something awful happens, when tragedy strikes, they are the type of person to not cry and not to break down and not to get emotional about it, but to go. What is the problem? I ha- let's find a solution, um, and let's go through this meticulously. Uh, I think you, it's very common in people with military backgrounds, um, common in men, but some women possess that as well. Um, so I found it weird that people were weirded out by Al's demeanor uh, when I found it to be very consistent. And it also, you know, at the end when he when he breaks down, and and we'll get into that as well later uh, in the next episode. It makes total sense as well because uh, essentially the mission is over. The mission when he was uh, w- when he's on the witness stand is to get through this testimony and and do that in a meticulous and rational way. Um, and then at the later when things are over and there's nothing left to fight about, then you can break down and you can have your your emotions and some people are able to compartmentalize that very well like Al some people are not you girl now the state brought forward another witness who had a very opposite demeanor of Al and this was Letitia's half-brother Dakota Lowry now his entire testimony was very difficult to listen to he has clearly had a very traumatic life which we got into a little bit in a previous episode Um, we learned that his father was an alcoholic who physically abused him from the time that he was very young and who went on to die on Dakota's 12th birthday Now he's found himself testifying in a murder trial where his sister, a person he's known and trusted for his entire life, was accused of killing a child. So I can only imagine what it must have been like. Uh, I don't think it was a huge shock to anyone when his testimony began with this. 
What is your relationship with Letitia Stout? That's my sister. Pretty tough for you being here right now? Yes, sir. Hang in there, all right? Um... <laughs> Why, Letitia? <laughs> Mr. Lowry, do you need a do you need a moment? Take a break for a moment, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have your step back in the back the jury room for a few minutes. All for the jury. Please. Now that outburst broke my heart, and I think we all felt nothing but sheer compassion for this guy. Of course, the jury had to be removed, and uh, Dakota was given a, a talking to and. Uh, he was allowed to calm down and he was able to continue testifying and he did a good job considering the circumstances. The main point of his testimony, I think from the prosecution's perspective, was to establish the suitcase that had Gannon's body in it, which he was later found in that we talked about before. Um, but the answers that he had to the defense's cross-examination um, when it came to his opinion on Letitia's mental state at the time were quite damning. When it first, when I, when everything first happened, and we found out that the little boy was found in the body, and we found out where he was found, I, it, it just, at that point, I knew she did it because of, when I seen that suitcase and asked her about it, she just had funny to me. And yeah, I thought she might have snapped and went crazy. Okay. But now, no. And the disgust that you can hear in his voice is just palpable. I had a lot of feelings for Dakota, and I think that he, I'm like very proud of him for um, being able to get up there. It was clearly extremely difficult for him to be there, and I just, I just wanted to give him a hug. So Letitia was clearly not loving how things were going. This whole trial is essentially a, the roast of Letitia Stoke in a way. Um, she spent the majority of the trial sitting in the corner looking like Samara from The Ring or the Grudge Monster, if that's what you recognize. But people at home began to notice that Letitia appeared to be flipping off witnesses once in a while. Uh, I think she thought she was being stealthy. I don't even know. Maybe she thought this would make her look insane. Um, but images of this were blasted all over the internet. The prosecution caught wind of them, and the judge was not having any of this bullshit. Um, then, uh, Mr. Allen, I'm going to direct this question to you because you made the comments on Friday. Um, you had indicated that um, you had received some information, and I thought you said some photographs. Uh, regarding the defendant's conduct, uh, which potentially could be construed as um, uh, extending the middle finger or flipping people off, including a witness, uh, perhaps family. Do you have uh, those photographs? I can get them printed. Basically, it was just screen captures from what was being broadcast okay. on WebEx, which I think the court may also have the same things that I saw. Um, Do we have that now? Okay. So we will, um, we will upload some of that. Um, so that there is some record of what it was. Um, and um, you may have all noticed that the uh, 
tables have been uh, slightly reconfigured. They'll be reconfigured again after um, or at lunchtime, largely because I think that table where it is is generally wasted space. Um, so what we're gonna do is give you a more narrow one and slide that table over further. I'll move that table then to the back so that you can put stuff on it. You may still be able to use it to some extent, but nobody will be able to sit at it. Um, Ms. Stauk, you have the right and obligation uh, to be present for your trial. Being present permits you to see the evidence the prosecution is presenting against you. It permits you to communicate with your lawyers <coughs> while that is going on and assist them in your defense. You also have the right for the jury not to see you in restraints that are commonly associated with being held in custody or confinement. That way, the jury does not see you as a prisoner or someone who is in custody uh, and is not prejudiced against you because of that. These rights, however, are not without limitation. While you have the right to be present uh, for your trial, you also have the responsibility to behave with the respect and decorum required for this formal proceeding. You also have the responsibility to behave in such a fashion as to make the use of additional restraints unnecessary. Sometimes during trial, a defendant chooses to act out. The likelihood that that will happen, in my experience, seems to increase the longer the trial takes and the more serious the charges are. Um, and I know that right now we're in week four, or we finished uh, four weeks, we're starting week five. You aren't the first defendant to act out. Probably not gonna be the last. I cannot imagine the pressure a defendant feels during any trial. It's not uncommon for a defendant to disagree with certain testimony or dislike a witness or a victim. Nevertheless, you cannot act disrespectfully in words or actions. First of all, never helps you out. You've already heard one juror uh, submitted a question regarding his observation of your conduct. They don't miss anything. It also makes your attorney's job much harder. They need to focus on the evidence presented and how to counter that rather than your conduct in the courtroom. <coughs> I am also aware of the practical realities that exist in this case. I could hold you in contempt for your conduct in the courtroom. That would mean that I could impose a sentence of up to six months of jail for each incident of conduct which I find to be contemptuous. However, in a case where a defendant is facing decades or even life in prison, if convicted, a six-month contempt sentence does not seem to be much of a deterrent. And, but that does not leave me without a remedy. We have moved the tables around. You are now sitting in a chair that does not rock or swivel. You will be directly facing the bench and you will be more in my line of sight. I wanna caution you against certain actions, um, such as waving your hands around, trying to stretch your fingers out and leaving one of them more prominent than the other. Those acts uh, would be, in my opinion, disrespectful to the proceeding. It's disrespectful to the court and the legal process. I also view it as a form of witness intimidation and an attempt to influence presentation of evidence in this case. If that conduct occurs again, it would be a violation of the decorum I expect in this case. 
everybody that's sitting in the gallery sees signs that have already warned them of the same kind of conduct. You can't do it either. I may then impose other remedies. I could simply have a bolt installed on the underside of the table and have your hands cuffed to that bolt. You wouldn't be able to use your hands. The jury wouldn't be able to see the handcuffs. It would be uncomfortable. I could have you removed from the courtroom and the trial would proceed without you. You would, be you would not be returned to the jail. Instead, you would be held in a holding cell in this building. You know how uncomfortable they are. You would then be transported back to the courtroom at every break to see if you had changed your mind and agreed to behave in a respectful manner a courtroom requires. And you would be brought over for the next day of trial and we would start all over again. So after that, stern talking to, Letitia was moved to the middle of the defense table and we were given a much better view of her. Did we want it? I don't know. Now another highly anticipated prosecution's witness was Harley Hunt, Letitia's daughter. Harley was now 20 years old, is now 20 years old, um, and she was 17 at the time of Gannett's murder, which made her a minor. Harley was arguably the person who knew Letitia the most intimately, who was with Letitia the most at the time of the crime, and who was present in the van or truck that carried Gannon's body from Colorado to Florida, where it was eventually dumped. Harley was very uncooperative through the investigation, uh, and it was clear that this was because her mother made her, but this led many people to believe that she was somehow in on it. We did find out during her testimony that there came a point where, you know, post Letitia's arrest, like a year or two in, where the DA brought her in for an interview, and she was told that they were going to make a decision as to uh, whether or not they were going to charge her with accessory to first-degree murder. Now, without being promised anything one way or another, Harley gave her account of what happened and cooperated, and that resulted in her not being charged, and she did become a prosecution's witness and went on to testify against her own mother, which, whew, my God. Now, it is my opinion that Harley had no knowledge of the crime. It is my opinion that she was truthful in her testimony. It is also the opinion of the DA and the judge. But of course, everybody is free to decide that for themselves. Now, Harley's testimony laid out the timeline of events on the day of the murder and the following days via her text messages and phone calls with Letitia. Those messages, to me, told us two key things. One, Harley was clearly not around during the time of the murder and had no idea that the murder was taking place or later that it had taken place. And second, Letitia was very abusive toward Harley. She was rude to her. She showed her very little respect. She was demeaning. She was manipulative. And she expected Harley to go along with everything she said, no questions asked. Um, it's been made clear to me through the investigation and the trial that Letitia and Harley had a very close relationship. Um, it's almost like Letitia treated Harley like she was kind of her only friend. And Letitia didn't let Harley 
do much outside of school and work. Uh, she had Harley do a lot of the childcare work. Uh, she, in a way, prevented Harley from making other friends and like isolated her. Um, and Letitia would also often use Harley's social media pages or even her phone to interact with others while pretending to be Harley. Um, I think the whole thing was toxic, it was weird, it was messed up. Now, during her testimony, Harley was asked why she didn't question her mother, why she didn't ask her about the why she was leaving cars here and there and renting cars, why they had to leave and go on the run, why she didn't help look for Gannon, like all these, it was all these things going on and Harley basically did not question her mother at all. And her answer to this was that she knew not to, not to question Letitia because if she did, her mother would quote, backhand her. Again, my own personal take here, but based on the testimony, the text message evidence, Harley's general demeanor, and the fact that her mother murdered an 11-year-old boy, I think it's reasonable to conclude that Letitia was an abusive parent who manipulated her daughter and groomed her into becoming an unwitting accomplice to her murdering and dumping the body of her 11-year-old stepson. Now, still the big question was, how did she not know that there was a body in the back of the truck? So here we have People's Exhibit 201. Do you see that on the TV screen behind you? Yes. Is that the van then that you uh, drove off to with your mom on February 1st, 2020? Yes. And People's Exhibit 202? What do we see in People's Exhibit 202? It is a picture of the back of the van. Did you ever go back in this back area during I, the entire time you had this van? I did not know. Why not? Because everything that I needed was right by my seat in the front of the van. Want to go back there? Um, I remember like wanting more clothes. So why didn't you go back and get some more clothes? Just because whenever we stopped, it was like quick, like. Um, whenever he stopped at hotels and stuff, so, um, there's no point. Well, did you ever ask your mom, why can't I go back there and get some clothes? No. Did your dogs ever go back there? No. Did you have your dogs with you? I guess I should ask first. Yes, we did. Now that is the explanation that we got from Harley's testimony. Earlier in the trial, there was a discussion with the man who found the body in the suitcase. He did not mention anything about smelling the body before opening the suitcase. Further, the medical examiner who examined the body said that the way that the body was wrapped up in blankets and placed in the suitcase, it was reasonable to assume that there may not have been much of a smell. It was also cold, this was winter time, so um, we didn't have rapid, um, whatever, decomposition, although as they drove on, they got to hotter climates. The suitcase was also kept in the back section of the moving van, which was completely cut off from the front section, which we just saw. Now, again, this is the answer we have for why Harley didn't smell anything, or if she did, why she didn't say anything. Some are not satisfied with this answer. I am. I think that you have to do way more backflips to conclude that Harley had anything to do with Gannon's murder uh, than this explanation. Please feel free to change my mind in the comments. Please feel free to fight me on it. I would love any more information that I don't have. I was scheduled to go in to meet with my recruiter that morning 
um, and she brought me there. She waited in the car that we had there. Um, and that's when I walked in and like, there was like police and everything talking to me and told me that she had been arrested. Did you actually see her get arrested? No, I did not. And did this happen on March 2nd of 2020? Yes. Did you give an interview with FBI agent sitting over here? Yes. Recognize him? Yes. And did you talk about some of the things that we talked about here with regards to the Dollar Tree and the events surrounding Gannon's disappearance? We did, yes. Were you completely upfront with him at that time? Yes. When you were talking to him, did you still believe that your mom didn't have anything to do with this? Yes. And that was before Gannon's body was discovered, is that right? Yes. What about when Gannon's body was discovered? Um, that was a little bit after when I found out it was discovered in Florida. It was just weird because, like, to myself, I was like, we were in Florida. Um, but I kept, like, wanting to think it was, like, a coincidence and that somebody, like, did follow us or there was a different story. You still believed your mom even after that? Yes. At what point did you not believe your mom anymore that she didn't have anything to do with Gannon's death? Um... I like started having questions, but I still like believed her for a while. And it wasn't until this past like November, it was recently. What are your thoughts about your mom pleading not guilty by reason of insanity? I didn't know what it meant at first. Um, yeah. Did you learn what that meant in November? Um, yes. I want to talk about your life with your mom since the day you were born, as far back as you can remember, okay? Okay. Had you been with her 24-7? Yes, other than like when I was at school or work or... Would she ever disappear for weeks at a time and you not know where she's at? No. Had you always known where she was at up until we talked about the Life360 app, but had you always known where your mom was at? for a given time period. Yes. <clears throat> Had you ever gone to Australia with your mom? No. Have you ever gone to Saudi Arabia with your mom? No. Has your mom ever gone to Australia or Saudi Arabia without you? No. Would you know that if she did? Yes. Had you ever seen your mom change personalities into someone she isn't? No. What do you mean by that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Has she ever not remembered who you were? No. Have you ever seen her not remember who Al Stout was? No. Have you ever seen her not remember who Gannon was? No. Lena? No. Has she ever been treated for any mental illness in your lifetime? No. Would you know that if she was treated? Yes. Would you know if she ever went to a psychiatric hospital and was in an inpatient program and couldn't leave because of some kind of mental illness? Yes. Had that ever happened? No.
Had she ever seen a therapist about mental illness that you know of? No. During the entire time, especially in January, January 27th of 2020, all the way up till you go to Myrtle Beach in this van, your mother have the capacity to know right from wrong? Yes. Did you see that with your own eyes? Yes. Did she know how to check into rooms? Yes. Did she know how to register for rooms? Yes. Did she obey the traffic laws? Yes. Did she do anything unusual on any, you know, during this entire trip? No. Have you seen people who are mentally ill? Yes. Do you know the difference in what I'm talking about? Someone who can't function in society versus the way your mom was acting? Yes. Did you see any evidence of that with your mother? No. All I can say is that, again, I feel nothing but compassion for Harley. Let's do a little recap on Harley's life. Her father is dead. Her mother is a child murderer. Can you even begin to think about how you would go about dealing with that sort of trauma? Knowing that you took part in a road trip while the body of your 11-year-old stepbrother was in there with you? It's unbelievable. And during the trial, during her testimony, you know, it's, it's live stream, so you have the, the feed of people chatting or whatever. And the amount of people who, with zero evidence just went on and on about how she must have been in on it and she's defending her mother and blah, blah, blah. And there was no indication that she was defending her mother. All she did, you know, during the investigation was listen to her mother and keep quiet. And yeah, I can see how it's not helpful. And obviously, yeah, I would have wanted her to to be more truthful and honest with law enforcement out the gate. But her mom fucking groomed her. Like, it's very clear. So... This poor woman is going to have to go the rest of her life with that shame on her and with people thinking that she had something to do with this. And that is just brutal. So I, I wish her nothing but uh, good things. And I think she is uh, an, uh, just another victim in this case. So this is where I'm going to leave it for part one. I think part two will... Oh, sorry. I'm not going to say part one. This is part five. Um, part six is going to be a little longer, but um, we're going to start and go through all the expert, uh, mental health expert witnesses. Um, so that's going to be a doozy, but I want to I wanna cleanly cut it here and, and start with all that in the next episode because um, that's where we really get into it, and it's fascinating. Um, yeah, so I hope that you learned something. I hope that uh, you'll stick around for my last part. And I promise that will be it. That will be the last part. And uh, yeah, please um, stay safe out there because you never know who's knocking. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lost Line Media. Artwork by August Digital. Music by Matthew Cook.